0: Hi, everyone. I'm Brene Brown, and this is Unlocking Us. Welcome to our second episode in our Sister Strong six-week series I'm doing this summer with my sisters, Ashley and Barrett, on the gifts of imperfection. The series is going to run from June 23rd to July 28th. It's so fun to see all the different ways people are joining us. There are In Real Life book clubs, which is like really neat to see after such a long time. There are online book clubs. Sisters are getting together to do it. Friends are getting together to do it. I even know some couples that are going to do it together. Here's what I would do if you're interested in following along. You can use the new 10th anniversary edition of The Gifts of Imperfection, or you can use your original book. Both of them are perfect. Okay. All right. Y'all ready to do this today? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Oh, pinch
1: poke. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't
0: know what's happening. I really don't know what's happening. Them. We have this sister thing that's real and strong, but then they have a twin thing that's just creepy. <laughs> Let me tell you this story. Let me tell you right now. Right now, I'm going to tell you all the story. It's
1: going to be about...
0: Now they're talking behind. Okay. <laughs> They're cheaters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's what I just said. It's going to be about that's we cheated. <laughs> okay,
0: wait. No, we were playing Pictionary and it was me and my brother against the two of them. This is 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, probably at least. <laughs> and all of a sudden it was insane. They would just draw like a check mark. Barrett would draw a check mark and Ashley would go, Mardi Gras, in New Orleans. <laughs> and then they would win. And I was like, what the hell? And then. They draw a card, and Ashley draws a circle, (laughs) and there it goes. What is that basketball player's name? Akimelajuan. Akimelajuan. Yeah, (laughs) she just drew a circle. He's like, she's like Akimelajuan, and I was like. This is bullshit. <laughs> uh, and then they just started dying laughing. And they've been cheating for like an hour. <laughs> and, and then my brother, who was like very competitive, was like, uh, This is, th- th- they can't be on the same team. They've got some kind of twin superpower. So I'm just telling you, you've seen a little bit of that today already. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> but Ashley and Barrett and I are here with you today. We're talking about guidepost number one and guidepost number two, <laughs> which. We're not here as experts. We're here as people with <laughs> <laughs> somewhere, somewhere ex- between half and three-quarters of a tank of gas <laughs> in each of these guideposts. Um but we're here to talk it through with you. So I'm glad you're here too.
2: Apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
0: All right, y'all ready to jump in? Let's yeah. do it. Okay. Okay. Guidepost number one, (laughs) this is just a hard one, letting go of what people think and cultivating authenticity. So there is a big honking definition of authenticity that is in the top of this chapter that emerged from the data. So let me read it for you or to you. I'm on page 68 of the hardcover book. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Choosing authenticity means cultivating the courage to be imperfect, to set boundaries, and to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, exercising the compassion that comes from knowing that we're all made of strength and struggle, and nurturing the connection and sense of belonging that we can only achieve when we believe that we're enough. Authenticity demands wholehearted living and loving, even when it's hard even when we're wrestling with the shame and fear of not being good enough, and especially when the joy is so intense that we're afraid to let ourselves feel it. Mindfully practicing authenticity during our most soul searching struggles is how we invite grace, gratitude, and joy into our lives. We could just take the whole time and talk about this definition. Like okay, yes. okay so one thing I'll tell you about this definition, this insider information is the book. This book had already gone to print, the original 10 years ago. And I was coding data and realized that I had forgotten the part that says choosing authenticity means, it just said cultivating the courage to be imperfect and to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And there was nothing in there about the courage to set boundaries. And it was that and one other issue was literally a stop the press moment. Yeah, What do y'all think about the relationship between authenticity and boundaries?
1: I mean, I think if you're not setting boundaries, it's hard to be authentic because I make up you're probably living in some resentment, which is not being authentic either. So I just think, first of all, to know for you what's okay and not okay, I think that's a really big step because sometimes we don't know, but to figure out what's okay for us and what's not okay for us is totally part of what you have to figure out to be authentic.
0: Yeah. Ashley's talking about this definition of boundaries. It's basically super simple, what's okay and what's not okay. And I think it's a very important way to think about boundaries. It's a definition that I actually first saw used by Kelly Ray Roberts, the artist, who's also a good friend. So she teaches these amazing art lessons. And just FYI, she's a social worker.
1: I don't know if I knew that. She's an MSW. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, she was
0: an oncology social worker in a hospital and then self-taught art and then became a full-time artist and has all these big contracts with distribution and companies. And so she had done an art class and some of the students, not a lot, but a few of the students made art, like basically just copied her art and then started selling it. And so... She, in great social work fashion, and she'll even say this was the social worker in her, just wrote this blog post, and this was probably 15 years ago, that said, hey, love that you're inspired by the art. Here's what's okay, and here's what's not okay. You can paint anything that looks like my art and copy my art and hang it in your house and do anything you want with it. What's not okay is to copy my art and do anything commercial with it. Yeah. Here's what's okay to be inspired by my work. Here's what's not okay to copy my work and then put your name on it. And so one of the things that was so powerful about this definition of boundaries was it wasn't just what's not okay. It's also what is okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so often when we're setting boundaries with people, first of all, the hardest thing about setting boundaries is the fear of not being liked. Oh, yeah. And
1: if they don't follow through, the consequence. Oh, that- God. Yeah, that sucks.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> the accountability piece, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are so bad at accountability in this world, in this culture, that we don't even know how to talk about it. Politically, in families, at work, we do not know how to do accountability. And why? Because the foundation of accountability is vulnerability.
1: You should probably say that again. She stole my (laughs) line.
0: (laughs) No, the foundation of accountability is vulnerability. That's why we suck at it. That's why in the political sphere and the cultural sphere in the U.S. right now, if we're pissed at someone, we'll shame the shit out of them. But we don't actually hold accountable because shame is just discharging anger and rage. But accountability. And when you set a boundary – when you say here's what's okay and here's what's not okay and then to your point ashley they don't respect that boundary then you have to be accountable yeah. and when you say what's not okay you're often not liked yeah
1: do you remember one of the first times as an adult as a mom and an adult and in my career I started going to therapy and we talked about this idea of being a boundary bully. Like <laughs> like once you start getting to the point where you're like, I'm gonna set boundaries, watch this. And then you're like on
0: boundary overload. Yeah. No, it's like you swing from no boundaries to I have a great example. Okay, good. <laughs> does it include, <laughs> include Barry? <laughs> She's looking at you. <laughs> no. So I was newly into this book. I just finished writing this book. I was still in weekly therapy with Diana. And Ellen got invited to do a sleepover with a bunch of girls. And kind of in our friendship group, I was probably the strictest. And so everyone would call me and say, hey, are we dropping our kids off at the movies yet? You know, and I'd say all puffy from the power of that question i would say <laughs> no we're not dropping yet we're still going and sitting behind them and so i was kind of like do you think they're allowed to do this yet uh i don't not yeah i think so i was the first with the ear piercing too <laughs> <laughs> so i knew this family it was a bunch of the girls that ellen hung out with but i knew this family in particular were very lax there's probably a less judgmental word but they're very loose about what their kids watched on tv and the movies they watched. And so
2: <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell the story. Y'all are gonna go,
0: that's Brene at her worst. I've probably done I'm sure I've done it with y'all a thousand times. But this was my boundary bully stage. And so the girls went all go over and I'm gonna call the mom and just say, They're gonna do pizza, movie, you know, and I say, What are they watching tonight? And it was something that Ellen couldn't see. It was something that clearly was not okay. Not just according to me, but common sense media, (laughs) my friends. And so I said, you know, that feels super inappropriate for this age group. And a lot of times when kids watch films like that, especially films that have that kind of violence, they don't really have a place to file it. It feels bad. And so I just gave this lecture. You know, in the end, I think she said, so that's a no, right? No, they can't watch that. I was like... (laughs) But it was such a boundary. It was just me finding my, you know, now it's like, hey, is it okay if the kids watch this? Probably not a good choice. Probably not a good pick for Ellen. But these three movies would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I've totally been there. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> <laughs> On the receiving end of my bullshit, or y'all done that too? I think both. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Yeah, but it's true. Because when you first set a boundary, so let me see if I can explain this from the research in an interesting way. When I was growing up, when y'all would go see Mima for the summer, that's our grandmother that lives in San Antonio. Uh-huh. Would y'all like go to the movies and do putt-putt golf and do all that kind of stuff? Yes.
1: I don't remember putt-putt, but I definitely. Oh yeah,
0: we went to, what was the place called? It's still there. Oh, it's like the most famous. Oh, Kitty Park? So, you no, know, we'd go to Kitty Park for sure, I too. Kitty Park. We're dating yeah. ourselves now, us and every San Antonio over 70. <laughs> but we'd go to Kitty Park, and we'd go to the zoo and do yeah. all that stuff. And every day would, there would be an event. And so I remember one morning when I was little, because this was struck me as so weird, it just stayed in my memory. Mima said, we can do anything today but go to McCreely's, which was the mall by our house. So there was the Piggly Wiggly and McCreely's Mall on the south side. And I said, why not? And she goes... God, it hurts me so much to stand still. And so I was like, so we can go somewhere where you have to walk a lot, but you can't stand? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, walking's fine, but standing still hurts. And I always think about that with my research because a lot of times we believe that there's this very long walk between I'm a worthless piece of shit and I'm better than everybody else. And the truth is the pain of that hurts so much because it's standing still. You're standing in the exact same place when you think you're better than everyone or worse than everyone. There is no long walk there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you are standing still in the same amount of pain when you're not setting boundaries as when you're judging and shaming people with boundaries. There's no difference there. Do you know what I mean? Neither one of those is authentic. One of them is, I'm not going to say anything to you about the movies because you're a cool mom and I want you and your friends to like me. Mm -hmm. And the other is, I'm going to bully you around this because I want to be better than you. Same place, same amount of pain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Yeah, it was really helpful, Linz. I don't know that I would have been able to put that into words, but. Yes. Yeah, I don't think
0: I've ever heard you explain it that way either. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think about it a lot. You know, I wrote it for an essay or something for a magazine, and then I end up writing it on something else. But I think we don't understand that when we think we're better than everyone, we're exactly in the same place as we are when we think everyone's better than us. The long walk is from that space to non-judgment around ourselves and other people damn (laughs) (laughs) but that's the long walk yeah but i don't think you can be authentic like if what's a hard boundary you've had oh you've you set boundaries you're really good you've been doing boundary work in therapy right barrett i have yeah what's been the hardest part for you about setting boundaries
3: i'm a pleaser Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and so that's the hardest part for me i think I think I file right into the pleasing, making sure everybody has what they need, making sure everything's good. And so when I set a boundary, it's usually because my pleasing meter is over its limit. And so it's really hard because it's uncomfortable, number one, to set the boundary, and then it's uncomfortable, too, for me to come out of that role.
0: Out of the pleaser role? Yeah.
3: So for me, most often they're tied together.
0: And if you had to fill in the sentence, it's hard for me to set boundaries because I don't want people to think.
3: I'm an asshole.
1: <laughs> yeah, and fair. Yeah. yeah. And what's the hardest part for you? I was going to say, I'm not much of a pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> I started the asshole role, I think, it <laughs> moved backwards. The hardest part for me about setting boundaries, yeah. when you were saying that earlier, just two seconds ago, But I can stay in judgment and resentment. But I think my biggest fear is that they would leave and not respect my boundaries, that they would rather just be like, ah, oh, screw her. So I think that that's what scares me the most.
0: So the fear that you're not worth holding the boundary for?
1: Yes. Yeah, and that's the work that I'm doing in my therapy right now. So it's same like boundary work is bare, but different, I can stay in judgment. And when I get to using my voice, it feels scary because then the worthiness comes in for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think what's so powerful about what you said, Ashley, is I think underneath. I even want you to just say that was Barrett saying it because people would never know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't trick the audience, but <laughs> okay. like y'all did with teachers in elementary school. Um, But what I think is really powerful about what you said is that if you get to the point where you're doing work on setting boundaries, our biggest barrier is going to be what our fundamental fear is. Yeah. And so if your fundamental fear is of being liked and people thinking you're awesome, and then, oh my God, I don't want them to think I'm an asshole. If your fundamental work right now is around worthiness and she's worth holding that boundary for. And mine goes back to this really hard work that I'm doing right now. I didn't even know it was boundary work. And I'm back seeing my therapist again. And she's like, God, we're back to boundary work like a decade, you know. I'm like, son of a sea <laughs> cook. <laughs> and it was really hard because I struggle to set boundaries out of the fear of people not thinking I'm good. Like, can you help with this? Sure, I'm happy to help you with that. And she's like, you can't help people with all that. I had to practice saying, I had to practice in therapy. I have to practice saying this. Ashley say, I'm having a really hard time finding a place to get vaccinated. And we're going to role play. And this is me. Okay, I'm having a really hard time finding a place to get vaccinated. Oh, I'll help you. I've got a really good system for doing that. I'm happy to help you. Barrett's like, Barrett's giving me the no shit Sherlock face because it interferes with work a lot, right? It can, yeah. So I'm so afraid. And this is like being really truthful. This is really hard to talk about. But I'm so afraid that you didn't even ask me for help, right? But I'm so afraid that if I don't help you, then oh, you're Brene Brown, and you're a big fat liar, and you're not a good person. And so I had to practice in therapy with my therapist saying things like, yeah, it's so frustrating to find the spot and then forget that, you know. It wouldn't even dawn on me to be empathetic in that situation and be like, wow, that sounds tough. I really had to write down on my hand, wow, that sounds tough, as opposed to I can fix that.
3: That's so hard. Because here's a question. In this role play, I wonder, Ashley, how you would have felt if she would have said, oh, I can fix that. I can find you a vaccine, blah, blah, blah. Or if she said, God dang, it sucks. I've been online all morning. You would have come away probably
0: feeling heard and seen either way. I don't know, but I can tell you that when I say I can find you a vaccine by two o'clock, most people are are like, I don't know what the correct answer is from the gifts of imperfection, but I'll take the vaccine. I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just saying that the work I'm doing is, and even she asked me, my therapist said, it's like so... I can't believe we're talking about this, but it's all right, because I'm sure I'm not the only one, right? Yeah. Or am I, maybe? No, I <laughs> thought it was just me. <laughs> no, and underneath all these hard, big things are the shame things, right? Oh, um, yes. God. Yeah. So it's like I forgot what I was going to say, because my unconscious is protecting me. <laughs> but, um, we should talk about this, because these two guideposts for today, the self-compassion, the authenticity, the perfectionism- It goes back to resentment for me. Like if I help someone, this is my newest insight from therapy. If I help someone from a genuine place, not out of fear of what they might think, I don't feel resentment, even if the task is 10x as hard to do. But if I help someone just out of the fear of what someone might think, that's resentment. Yeah. Do you have resentment?
3: Yes, I have resentment for the same reasons you just said.
0: Do you have resentment ever?
1: I need like a life vest to hold me up from the resentment that I'm swimming in. It's like an ocean. Okay, so we talked about this yesterday and what you shared was so cool.
0: Yeah, so I'll share this because this jacked me up. This was a humbling, hard insight. I ran this insight past my therapist and waited for her to say, no, I don't think that's true. And she's like, that's exactly true. And I want you to write that down and think about it. I was like, oh, damn. The fuck? You don't, you don't know, me. know me. You don't know me. That's what we say. <laughs> that's our favorite line our theory. You don't know me. <laughs> of course, we all e-
3: say it with each other after our session.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't actually say it with Super brave. Yeah, we we're like really brave with each other. And then I told her, you don't know me. <laughs> None of us do that. <laughs> okay, so, so resentment And I'm weaving some Enneagram in here, which I don't know. It's like trying to find the validity and reliability of the Enneagram stuff. It's like the descriptors are right, but the groups are weird. I don't know. But I find it somewhat helpful. Do y'all?
1: Yeah, I do. They don't know me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah. So there's like on the number one, our big thing is resentment. And I remember like... I know the number ones all think the number one stuff is the meanest, but it is the meanest. (laughs) It is totally the meanest. They had this bird in this meme and its wings were like straight down by its side. and Its beak was out and it had this mean face and it was flying. It was like a real bird and it was just flying. (laughs) And underneath it, it said, fueled by sheer resentment and rage. The number one. I was like, oh, you don't know me. (laughs) So... Before I did the podcast with Mark Brackett, before we went on air or whatever, we started recording, he and I were just talking. And so I thought, well, hey, I'm on with Mark Brackett, who runs the emotional literacy center at Yale. So I'm gonna ask my question about <laughs> resentment because why not? Right. I think I said something like, Well, you know, so I know resentment's part of the anger family, and started talking, and he goes, No, no, no. Resentment is really part of the envy family. And I got dizzy. Like I was really like, What the it's like what I was in this swirl, like, whoa time was slowing down. And I was like, what? And he goes, No, resentment's kind of a function of envy. Then I became total dad. What? <laughs> Shit. You sure?
1: Um, <laughs> and he's what like What angels
0: yeah. do you have? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm sure. And so I started thinking about it, and I've been thinking about it so much that sometimes I think I feel resentment at other people who are not weighted down by their worth being held hostage by having to be good all the time. Yeah. You know, they can just be messy and human and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if resentment really is in the Envy family, what would that mean for you, Ashley? Um, Like around, just around boundaries yeah, and authenticity. Yeah, I just think
1: it would, well, first of all, I feel like the anger kind of goes away when I think about it that way because I have resentment and judgment. Yeah. Yes, me too. I feel like a little bit of the anger has gone away because then I feel like it almost takes it off of them that I've been so pissed off and judgment and resentful about and brings it back to me yes. about, well, what's that envy? Like, and what do you need? What am I missing? Yeah,
0: what do I need?
1: What can I do to fill that void? Yeah.
3: Y'all are so good. I'm still really pissed off and <laughs> resentful. <reasonable. laughs> and I'm like, well, if you guys had, I'm usually like, my resentment is like, Shit, you have one third of the things to do that I have to do. One third. So I can now see what has envy. <laughs> <laughs> I still like, what the hell?
0: That's the hard thing. So like, <sighs> yeah, that's the hard thing. But
1: oh my gosh, there's like, <laughs> for someone that swims in a lot of resentment and judgment, it feels so freeing. And I imagine it will be hard for some people to get there, but this is seriously what I've been doing in therapy for the last three or four weeks straight. And although my therapist was probably like, hell yeah, she got there. I didn't really get there until we talked about it yesterday.
0: Yeah, because now when I'm feeling resentment, which is like a lot, I used to think it was because people weren't working hard enough or doing enough or pulling their weight. But now it's like... If I say, oh, I'm resentful, what do I need more of? Yeah.
3: Just thinking this through right now for me, it's like, most of the time is because they're boundaryed about shit that I'm not boundaryed about. And I need to be more boundaryed for my own stuff. But is
0: it that they're more boundaryed? I mean, really, I miss asking this question, because is that really what they are? Because, I mean, I know what we're talking about here. And it's like, is it that they're more boundaryed, or is it that there's just not as many expectations on them as either I put on you or you put on yourself? Or is it more about not that they're more boundaryed? it's that we're missing the boundaries?
3: Maybe so, yeah. I don't know. I think it all, however you package it, is all my own life's work. And I think it's the hardest part for me.
0: Such an interesting conversation, right, because Mm -hmm. our underlying drivers, our underlying fears of whatever it is that we fear, and our underlying needs show up in different ways, but the same problems. I think that's true of everybody. I mean, just it's like, yeah.
2: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances.
0: Okay, I do want to do this before we get out of this episode. So dig deep. So each of these Mm -hmm. chapters in here has a dig deep, which means kind of how do you get deliberate about making different choices? What inspires you? And how do you get going? And we don't have to do them all for every one of them, but I encourage y'all to do them. They're really helpful. Yeah. So do you have a mantra for authenticity? My mantra is still, I wrote this 12 years ago. It was probably when (laughs) I started working on this book or 11 years ago. Don't shrink don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. And that is a great example of, hey, Brene, we're going to let the kids watch Saturday Night Fever tonight. And shrinking is like, oh, okay, that sounds good. And in my mind, I'm like, that's not okay. That's not okay. That's not appropriate. And that's shrinking. Puffing up is like, that's an incredibly, you may not get the subtleties of that movie, but it'll certainly, you know, like like that's (laughs) the puffy nap. And just stand my sacred ground, which is like... Great movie. I'm probably not ready for Ellen to see that yet. Mm-hmm. So can we pick something else? Yeah. So do y'all have authenticity mantras? I actually don't have one. I
1: mean, honestly, when we were talking about it earlier, I was like, yeah, mine's pretty much just like F you. <laughs> But that is probably just because of where I am in my life. But I think it would be helpful. I really do. It's funny because your mantra, I know by heart, because, of course, I run Daring Way groups all the time, and there's a video of you. And it is the people that I work with, the clients, it is their favorite thing that you do when you say this and how you explain it to them. So it's really powerful to have a mantra. Do you
3: have a mantra yet? I am just like thinking, what do I say to myself a lot?
1: It's not my circus, not my monkeys is what you say a lot. <laughs> you say I a lot do to say us? that,
3: but mainly what I've been saying a lot lately is God do your
0: work, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I was thinking about that before we started this <laughs> podcast series, that we could be hard around the doing your work.
3: I definitely can be hard and judgy. Maybe we're envious of the other people that aren't doing their
1: work. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, just me. Could you imagine?
3: Oh, yeah, driving with all that rage
1: deep down in your belly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, no. It's because Barrett has to commute it every day. (laughs) She,
0: She commutes a long way, but I mean,. Did you tell you that story about that guy that yes. like, got out of his car and like road rage guy, this older white guy in this big pickup truck, you know, we're in Texas, came and scared the crap out of it. It was really traumatizing. And I was like, did you flip him off? And she's like, no, I just started screaming, do your work. Do your personal work.
3: <laughs> I, but you know what? I think about that a lot, obviously, still. And it just must be terrible to be around that dude a lot. Yeah. With oh, God, that kind yeah. of rage built up. I do. I feel sad for people that aren't doing their work because I think it was a podcast you did with Ashley C. Ford and J.R.W., Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, when...
0: Oh, for their book, Hungry Hearts, their anthology.
3: Yeah. And the question was like, why do you think people don't do their work?
0: Your answer was so amazing. Usually my answer would be, if you asked me that today, I don't know what I said then, is the fear of what they're going to find. It hasn't gotten bad enough. You know,
1: well, and you talk about in this book too that some people are afraid to open up because they think it'll swallow them whole. To even start talking about, yeah,
0: what's inside, they think they're going to get swallowed whole, yeah. by pain and grief. And what they don't know is they're already living in that dark belly. Yeah, yeah. You know? that's it. Yeah, they are. They're already living there. We are. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We're lucky because we had a mom. Yes, who that, turned the tanker. Who turned the tanker? Who like pivot? She went to therapy. Yep. It probably was the end of her marriage to our dad. Yeah. But she just said, I can't do this anymore. I think Ronnie, her only brother, her only sibling, had already been shot and killed. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think she just said, I can't live like this anymore, and I can't pass this down to y'all.
3: Wait, that was her midlife, right?
0: Mm -hmm, That was her midlife.
3: Mm
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. I never thought about that till now.
3: Me neither. Me neither.
0: That was her midlife. And she just said- She would have bought this book. She would have loved it. She would have. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. Oh, she read this book. But I'm saying in her 40s. Oh, in
0: her 40s. Because
1: she's got every book ever.
0: Yeah. You know what's (laughs) embarrassing is when mom was going through her midlife unraveling and got into therapy and made a plan to leave dad and, and really turned her life around, her coffee tables and nightstands were just- packed to the ceiling with books by Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. And she did a lot of Jungian therapy. And I just remember thinking, oh, Jesus Christ, what is she doing? She's <laughs> what a weirdo. <laughs> now, now, you can't even walk two feet in my house without running into a Carl Jung <laughs> So yeah, she's also at that time was also reading a lot of Maya Angelou poetry. So yeah. All right. So I want to at least spend 10 minutes talking about the second guidepost, which we've spent some time already going over, but letting go of perfectionism and cultivating self-compassion. Yeah. And we talked about that in the first episode, but one of the things I really want to drive home here is when I did the book read, (laughs) my self-made podcast from home, my red kitchen table, I did a DIY podcast for, I thought it was just me. And I remember getting an email from this woman who said, my friends and I love your work. We don't really have shame issues. But if you ever do anything on perfectionism, Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) let us know. And I was like, oh. And then underneath, not just, thank you, Diane. And then her work signature, and then underneath her work signature said, "P.S. They're not related, are they?" Question <laughs> mark. Yeah, you know, like she knew. I think the one thing that people don't understand about shame is, and perfectionism is that where perfectionism drives us, shame is riding shotgun. Shame is that fear of not being enough, not being lovable, not being worthy of connection, for me not being good enough. Yeah, the not enoughs, yeah. The not enoughs, that shame. Boo. Boo, (laughs) yeah. And perfectionism is how we think we deal with it. We say, oh, God, I'm so afraid of not being enough. So I'm not going to set boundaries. I'm going to say yes to everyone. I'm going to help everyone. I'm not going to put any, for you, Ashley, any strain on anyone that makes it hard to be in connection with me in case they think it's too much work or I want to please. I want everyone to think I'm fun and easy and laid back and low maintenance and I can handle it all. It's like as, your 30s. Huh? It's your 30s. Yeah. But as I'm saying this about each of us, I see us little. Oh. I do, Ashley and Bear are making sad faces. I see us little. We were cute. We were cute, but I see how I had to be good and perfect and of integrity. Yes. Yes. Taking care of y'all all the time and not ever thinking about what I needed or wanted. That was not it. And watching a lot of anytime mom asked for what she needed or wanted, it was framed as selfishness, Yeah, you know, as opposed to being like, I guess, in Maybe dad's frame, the martyr, give everything to everyone, take care of everyone. I don't know what that was. And then how you, the worst was all you wanted to do from the first day of kindergarten. Like when you walk downstairs, you know, they may be identical twins, but they're very different. Mm -hmm. Ashley walked downstairs the first day of kindergarten in a dress with a hat and a matching umbrella. And Barrett walked downstairs <laughs> with tube socks, um, like a basketball jersey, and you know, and a ball underneath her arm. They were completely different, but how you had to be tough. You had to be the people pleaser. You were very much in high regard for being athletic and being easy and being able to wake up and throw a baseball cap on backwards and put your ponytail through it and you can handle anything and you were tough. And Ashley, you were like the sweet and cute and take care of everybody and make everything fun and put a bow on everything. And I was like the good, smart, always in my integrity, values person. And so just as we're talking through this, I can see... How perfectionism is so much like as long as you maintain those expectations, you're lovable. Damn. God damn. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But if you move away from those expectations, then that's going to test. And I could never be silly. I mean, could y'all imagine me being silly? Like, I couldn't be silly or goofy. I had to be a serious kid. Yeah. I could see it. Yeah, Same. And I was also doing a lot of raising of y'all, yeah. you know, when things would really go crazy. And so, God, it's so seductive, the perfectionism, right? It
3: is. I mean, it's like never ending. You just always chasing it,
1: always chasing it. Always yeah, more. that's when you talk about it too, Brene, like as process addiction almost. It's like you think you get through it and you're like, well, next time it'll be even more perfect. And so you never attain it.
0: Yeah, it is. It's like, for those of us who believe in perfectionism and have bought into that as a way to minimize shame or blame or disconnection or judgment, for those of us who believe that, and we're raised with a lot of evidence of that, unfortunately, when we ultimately do feel judgment or criticism or blame or disconnection, because that's just a human experience, we don't say, oh, fuck perfectionism, that stuff doesn't work. We say, you know what? I wasn't perfect enough. And that's the process addiction part yeah. of, I absolutely believe that perfectionism is a process addiction. And you know why else I believe? Just because when I think about my own food stuff, I think of when I first got into AA, this idea of whether it's beer or Marlboro Lights or red wine that you're pretending is just part of your fancy wine club, but you really can't live without it, or carbs or whatever it is, the saying that you can't get enough of what you don't need. Shit. Do you know what I mean? I'm like making a mental list in my head of those things. Yeah. But like, have you ever, I don't know, this is probably me because the food thing became a real thing for me. It was always been a real thing for me, but there's certain foods I just don't eat as part of my sobriety around my food because they're foods that if I ate one, a box of them would not be enough. Yeah. Yeah. It would stop whatever I'm feeling until I stopped eating. And then how much of it can you eat? You can't eat 15 boxes of Oreos, right? Yeah. You just can't. I mean, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. And so I think perfectionism is the same thing. You just yeah. cannot get enough of what you don't need. Yeah. So let's look at the dig deep in that just to close out this yeah. episode. Ashley <laughs> and Barrett are going to take a nap. <laughs> Yeah, talking about doing the self-compassion scale on Kristin Neff's website. So if the thing you don't need is more perfectionism, the thing you do need is self-compassion. Yeah. Woo, boy, I suck at that. Do you suck <laughs> at it? I do suck at Have that. Have you taken the Neff inventory? Yeah. Is self-kindness your lowest one? Yes, Self-kindness is my lowest one. So Kristen Neff is a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin, and she has studied self-compassion. Her work is fantastic. I think she's got a new book coming out this year, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's amazing. And she has an inventory on selfcompassion.org, which you can take. It's free, great, valid, reliable instrument. And it breaks self-compassion down into things. Kind of three elements, self-kindness, are you being warm and understanding toward yourself when you suffer, fail, or feel inadequate? Common humanity, do you recognize that suffering and the feelings of personal inadequacy are just a part of the shared human experience? And then mindfulness, which she's got my favorite definition of mindfulness, because mindfulness for her is not just you need to stop and feel what you're actually feeling. It's that and you can't become overly obsessed on what you're feeling. You've got to move through it. And so it gives you a score for all three of the elements. And so I'm really great on common humanity. And I'm really good on mindfulness, actually. I'm not good on self-kindness. Have you taken it, Ashley? Yeah, my lowest is self-kindness. But I'm interested. I'm going to take it again. Yeah. Yeah. Common humanity, when you're a therapist, which you are, or you work with me as closely, you know, like like, we know it's like me driving through our old neighborhood and knowing every story in those houses, being a shame researcher, sitting down with the most what you would think on the outside, ragged, road hard people who are filled with wholeheartedness and self-worth and then sitting across from the most rigid, perfect, well-resourced people who are just just literally living off shame yeah 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 so I know that if it's a weird smell on your body everybody's got it (laughs) if it's a weird situation with a parent everybody's got something okay so dig deep so actually for my dig deep is Dr. Neff's tool so I think we should all get deliberate and take that tool on selfcompassion.org and it's self-compassion you can find the link Oh, my Get Inspired. I'll read it to you from the book. Most of us are trying to live an authentic life. Deep down, we want to take off our game face and be real and imperfect. There's a line from Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem, that serves as a reminder to me that when I get into that place where I'm trying to control everything and make it perfect, I need to think about this line. It's There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, which is just such. So I write, so many of us run around spackling all of the cracks, trying to make everything look just right. And this line helps me remember that the beauty of the cracks, the messy house, the imperfect manuscript, the too tight jeans, these imperfections are not inadequacies. They're reminders that we're in this together, imperfectly bit together. And then my get going is sometimes I still wake up in the morning. And I do say today I'm going to believe that showing up is enough. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, episode page on BreneBrown.com with links to things that I talked about that you may want to hunt down and take a look at. Oh, and just a reminder that we're taking a short summer break from Dare to Lead. I'll be back July 12th with a two-episode series on the hardest feedback I've ever received. Incredible lineup for the fall. We're grateful to be here. And awkward, brave, and kind, y'all. I think we're doing some role modeling of that. What do y'all think? <laughs> <How laughs> I like, would yeah. Definitely awkward and definitely <laughs> brave. And we're really working. If we could only be as kind to ourselves as we try to be to each other, right? That would be great. I agree. That'd be helpful. All right. We'll see y'all next time. Unlocking Us is produced by Brene Brown Education and Research Group. The music is by Carrie Rodriguez and Gina Chavez. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Unlocking Us on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award-winning shows at podcast.voxmedia.com.